0: tonight, the doctrine of man, origin of sin. We're continuing the series looking at the doctrine of man. And as we get into the doctrine of man, really, we have to talk about sin because when we talk about man, we're talking about sinners. And so tonight or last week, we actually looked at how in Romans 5, the imputation of Of guilt, you know. So often we think of what we have inherited from Adam, and we've inherited sinful nature. But not only have we inherited just a sinful nature, a tendency to sin, you know, a bent towards sin, but rather we've been imputed with guilt. We have been counted guilty. In Adam, all are condemned. In Adam, all die. And we looked at that topic last week. And really, the imputation of Adam's sin is not a, a terrible doctrine, but rather it lays the foundation for the imputation of Justification of life of redemption in Christ Jesus, and how is that possible one man could die for the many well it 's because God started with imputation back in the garden, and now we have a different sort of imputation imputation of righteousness and of justification and of life what we 're looking at tonight as we continue looking at the topic of sin don 't we talk about the topic of sin I think it 's helpful if we talk about the origin of sin, where did sin come from? We talked about last week Adam and Eve, they fell into sin. But really, how did sin get into God's universe? If God is all perfect, all righteous, all good, he makes this universe, he speaks it in existence. everything is good, he says it as such, it's all good. And then we have sin coming into his creation just moments after he's just declared his universe good. So where did sin come from? How can sin arise? It's not coming from God, right? He's holy. But how can it arise from his good creatures that he's created as good or he's good angels? Where did sin come from? How did it get into this universe? So that's what we're going to look at tonight, the origin of sin. So as you follow in your handout on the first page, the first point, we're going to look at God and sin's entrance, okay? God and sin's entrance. We're going to start with God, the creator, sovereign. We're going to look at a few facts about God in relation to sin and sin's entrance into the world. The first one is that God ordained that sin would come into the world, okay? God ordained, chose, it was his plan, that sin would come into his creation. Now, where do I get that from? A few passages. First one, Ephesians 1.11. In him, talking about in, in the Father, in God, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will okay so all things are working in accordance to the counsel of god's will including sin it's part of the the all thing all means all in this case and all things includes sin Daniel 435 says he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done that is God does what he wants to do and so if sin is in this world it's there because it's serving God's good purposes okay revelation 13 8 the next text I want to look at It says, all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay, here's talking about the beast. Those are going to worship him. Who's going to worship the beast? Well, if their name is not found written in the lamb's book of life, they're going to go worship the beast. Now, it's interesting how it talks about the book of of life of the lamb when it says slain from the foundation of the world and actually that greek word there and this means slaughtered christ slaughtered from the foundation of the world now why is that so important we talk about god ordaining sin in his good creation well if christ was slain slaughtered from the foundation of the world or before the foundation of the world christ was slain for sin and for sinners and so the whole idea that the Son of God is slaughtered has the idea that sin is part of God's plan in the slaughter of His Son. The greatest sin was when Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews and the Romans conspired against Jesus Christ, the innocent one, the Son of God, and they put Him to death. Can you think of anything more sinful than crucifying the Son of glory? And when He is crucified, it was in God's mind before the foundation of the world. Therefore, sin... The very thing that Christ was planned to die for was also conceived in God's plan before the foundation of the world. Okay, so sin was part of God's plan. Number two, we must remember, though, that God does not sin. He does not delight in sin, nor can he be held responsible for sin. Okay, now this is where our mind begins to, how how can that be? Okay, how can, how can God ordain sin, but yet he does not sin, he does not delight in sin, nor can he be held responsible for sin? How does that work? Okay, we want to talk about that tonight. James 1.13, let's look at this first to, to, to defend this statement. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Okay, there are certain things that God can't do. One thing he can't do is be tempted with evil, be tempted to sin and actually commit it. Okay, Job 34.10, Elihu says this, therefore, hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. You can't even think about it. Genesis 18.25, far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. Of course God is just. It's a given. And that's what Abraham's counting on. Deuteronomy 32.4 says this. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. That's our God, just and upright, holy, no blemish, no sin in God, no possibility to sin. He cannot sin, he cannot lie. And he hates sin as well, Psalm 5, 4. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Okay, God does not delight, does not take pleasure in sin, even though he has chosen to use sin in his plans and his purposes. He doesn't delight in sin and in wickedness. Okay, so as we recall God's, who God is and the entrance of sin in this world, we recognize that God has a plan for sin. We also recognize that God is holy. He cannot sin. He does not delight in sin. And so how did sin get into this world and who, who? Who can we place the blame on for sin? Okay, is, is it man who gets the blame? Or is it like so many say today, is Satan made me do it? Is, it? is it we can lay that burden on the devil? Okay, we want to look at those things. We'll look at Satan in a bit, but let's talk about man first. So the next point on your handout, the bottom of page one is man and sin's entrance. Okay, we're going to look at man and sin's entrance. Look at God and sin's entrance. Now let's look at man and sin's entrance. Now before we get to Um, some of those blanks in the bottom of page one. So commonly, and you've probably heard it, uh, you've probably read it in books, you've probably heard it in sermons, so commonly the explanation of the origin of sin gets laid squarely at the feet of man's free will. That is, the reason why we have sin in this world is because God chose to make man and woman free creatures. And what they mean by that is free with the ability to do what's right and what's wrong, because if God created us with only the ability to do right, we're robots. And so God didn't do that. He created us as free creatures to do right and wrong. He created us and, and he loved us. And, and we, in our freedom, have the capacity to embrace that love and love in return, or we can reject it. And that is said to be freedom. And because God chose to make creatures with this kind of freedom— He created a world with the possibility of sin. And guess what? Man mucked it up. Free will that God had given to them led to the entrance of sin. And so now we see a world that's the way it is because of free will. And so God God chose that, that free will was more important than a world free from sin. And so he made creatures that had the free choice to do right and wrong. And God saw that this was a good thing to do. Now that's the typical in a nutshell, free will defense of evil and sin in this world. There's a few problems with that view. The first one is it doesn't come from the Bible. Uh, you, You don't find this in the scriptures at all. In fact, so much of it is against what the scriptures say. For one, scriptures never define freedom as the ability to do what is right or what is wrong. That is bondage according to the scriptures. Jesus says, he who sins is a slave to sin. He says, come to me and you'll be free indeed because I'm going to forgive your sins and cleanse you and you're going to be going to heaven with me where you won't be able to sin. That's freedom. The freedom to do and to love, do God's will and to love him with your whole heart. That's freedom according to scripture, not the ability to sin. That's bondage according to scripture. Another problem with it is the freedom so-called freedom that man possesses to do what is right and what is wrong, if you think about it, it is a greater freedom than God's own freedom. Because God can't do what is right and what is. Only God can do what is right. Only God can do what is just. So in creating this world, God, I guess, has given, in this scheme, man more freedom than he himself enjoys. Which is why so often the product of this kind of theology puts man up here and God down here. And we have a man-centered theology rather than a God-exalting, God-centered theology. Because we've made man this, this creature who, who has a greater freedom than God himself has. Okay, so we know there it's not right. And not only that, but if freedom is defined as the ability to do what is right or what is wrong, then when we go to heaven, when we enter God's kingdom, we are going to be in bondage. Because we won't have the ability to sin. Because we're going to have glorified bodies. And so, in that eternal state, we won't be free, according to this definition, because we won't be able to sin. So we recognize this this is, while it may be philosophically or logically satisfying to many, as why sin entered this world, the idea of free will, really, it doesn't hold up, according to what the scriptures say. Okay, so this can't be the explanation of why sin is in this world. Okay, the free will defense doesn't um, give us a satisfying explanation according to the scriptures. Okay, so we we'll turn next then for the account of the origin of sin. Okay, turn over to page number two on your handout. Hopefully, you got those blanks in the bottom of page page one. I didn't read those out verbatim, but hopefully, you're able to fill those in. Top of page two. Third thing I want to mention. We looked at God and sin's entrance, man and sin's entrance. Now we're going to look at the garden and sin's entrance. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the garden. We're going to read that text in Genesis 3 and see from the text itself whether we can understand how sin came into God's universe. We know it's God's plan, but how exactly was it carried out if God didn't sin, if he didn't tempt someone to sin. So how did sin enter his good creation? Genesis 3, 1 to 7. It's on your sheet. You can follow along as I read. that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so what we see here clearly in Genesis 3, the entrance of sin into God's good creation. Now he's a sin into the world, now there's guilt and shame. They recognize their nakedness, and they try to cover themselves up. And they try to run and hide from God. They recognize they've gone against his holy command. Now, we also see here that Satan is the one clearly that tempted Eve and Adam. To the sin, Adam was there. Okay, he was right there with her. He was seeing this stuff going on. He didn't step in and do the role of a man, but rather we see sin fa- Eve falling to sin. We see Eve taking that apple and or fruit, and giving it to Adam, and we see Satan was really the one who tempted them. So, in this account, it's it's, it's correct to say, well, Satan really was the first sinner. Uh, he was the first one against God and tempting Adam and Eve to sin. But Adam and Eve were the first human beings to sin. Okay, that's, they're the reason why sin is has pervaded the human race. But we recognize here that Satan has tempted them. So someone could argue that, well, it's really Satan's fault. That's how sin got into the world. Uh, but that still doesn't resolve us the problem because Satan was created as a good angel. So how could a good angel now be this um, um, devil in the garden tempting Adam and Eve to sin. How did that happen if he was created good? So we have the same problem, whether talking about Satan or Adam and Eve. How did good creatures fall into sin? We recognize that we sin. We're born with a sinful nature. What about Adam and Eve? What about Satan? How did sin enter God's good creation? Now, while not all mysteries of God's ways can be understood, certainly we can see portions of it as he's revealed it to us. And I believe the following two points in your handout, in bold there, right before, right after the quote in Genesis 3, 1 to 7, help us understand how sin entered into God's creation without God complicit in the act, and in in fact, that he did not commit sin, but how did a good creature sin? First point, God created creatures with good desires. Okay, I think you'll grant me this one. God created creatures... Good creatures with good desires okay Adam and Eve had the desire to for hunger okay they, a, they were hungry and to satisfy that desire for hunger they ate okay that was a good desire that God gave to them to be hungry uh to, to have a need for food good desire that God has given them and us of, of being thirsty when we're thirsty we need to drink that's that's a good desire to have it recognize that we, we need something and so having desire for food having desire for drink those are good desires to have, and God certainly would have created those in Adam and Eve. We have a desire for things that look good. We have a desire for things that are beautiful. Certainly Adam and Eve had desires for beautiful things, things that looked pleasing to the eye. You could say those are good desires. It's good to have a desire for wisdom and for knowledge. Certainly God created Adam and Eve with a good desire for greater knowledge and greater wisdom. Okay, so that's the the first point here, that God has created good creatures with good desires. Desires. Now the second point. Good desires can grow to become sinful behavior. Okay, good desires can grow to become sinful behaviors. Now, how does that work? We have a good desire to eat when we're hungry. But if we eat too much and we overindulge, now we've committed the sin of gluttony. And so a good desire, we need food, we have a desire for food, now that desire becomes disordered, distorted, and now we fall into sin, okay? We can think of other desires too. Um, We have a desire to love our spouse, okay? But sometimes our love for our spouse or even love for our children becomes so great that they become idols we become idolaters we love our spouse and our wives more than we love god and we're ready to forsake god and i know people who have left the church and who have forsaken the lord jesus christ out of a love for their spouse because they didn't want their spouse to leave them so they left christ people can do that a good desire to love your spouse good desire to love your children but it can become disordered skewed distorted such that we fall into sin And so we can see how good desires can grow to become sinful desires. Okay? Now, let's consider Adam and Eve's desires. Genesis 3, 6. Okay, remember those two points. Let's consider Adam and Eve's desires now. Back to Genesis 3, 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was, what? Good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, those good desires should look good for food. This is a good piece of fruit. Not only that, but it was a delight to the eyes. It looked exceptionally well. And it was able to make one wise. I want to be wise. I want to be knowledgeable. Those are good desires that God has placed within Eve. Look at First John 2, 15 and 16. We're going to see a parallel in 1 John 2. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh... The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but is from the world. So he's saying here flesh, all fleshly desires are wrong or bad, but no, the world what the world does is distort these desires that God has created within us and twists them and turns them such that we do not love God, but rather our affections are set on the things of this world. And that's happened to Eve. It looked good to eat and it looked good to the eyes and it was able to make one wise. Those are good desires, but those desires became so great that she was willing to forsake the command of God who says, do not eat of that fruit. She says, no, these, these desires had now surpassed. They're now ruling desires in her life greater than God's command and her and Adam fall into sin. So God created them good. They had good desires. Yet when those desires become disordered, they fall into sin. And then we do the same thing in our own lives. We so often, especially as Christians, we so often fall into sin because of our good desires that become disordered, that become ruling desires or or what's said as over-desires, such that we're we're ready to To defy the commands of God to get what we desire. And those can be good things. They can be desires for ministry. They can be desires for a quiet household and and, and children who know the Lord. Those can be good desires, but yet we can sin as those good desires become disordered. And that's what happened here in the Garden of Eden. So sin and the entrance of sin... I believe, as we can see here in Genesis three six, was the result of over-desire, desires that grew until they were misplaced, until they grew to the point where they were willing to forsake the command of God. Okay, let's also consider Satan's desires. Now, these passages in the Old Testament, I'm going to read from Ezekiel and Isaiah. These are written about the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. I recognize that's the historical context of these texts. Although when the text talks about the king of Tyre and the text talks about the king of Babylon, it portrays those kings and those time periods with poetic imagery of Satan in the garden. So we actually learn about Satan in the garden as the Bible condemns the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. Okay, so let's read these texts. Ezekiel 28, 11 and 19. Talking about Satan and his desires. Let's, let's look at those. It says, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay. He's laying a parallel here to Satan. Verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx and jasper, sapphire. And emeralds and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Now talking again about Tyre and Parallel with Satan. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Why? Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, and profaned your sanctuary, so I brought fire out from your midst it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have come to be dre- to a dreadful end and shall be no more forever. Okay, recognize if he finishes there again with talking about Tyre, but in the middle there he's comparing Tyre and the king of Tyre with Satan. We recognize that Satan was created good, wisdom, perfection, guardian cherub. And yet what happened? What happened to Satan? Unrighteousness was found in him. What does he mean by that? Well, Satan grew to be proud because of his own beauty. You know, recognizing his own beauty and having desire for his own beauty corrupted himself. It corrupted his wisdom because of his own splendor. Look also at Isaiah 14. I want to read verses 12 to 14. Same thing happening. King of Babylon being compared with Satan. It says here, how, are, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who lay the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Okay, that's how... We have a good angel, cherub of God, being created in righteousness and wisdom and beauty. And now, because a desire for his own beauty, a recognition of his own beauty, grows to the point of of selfishness now, where that is found in him unrighteousness and sin and filth. And he desires to exalt himself above God. And we recognize Satan's sin here is that of idolatry, idolatry of self. No wonder the spirit of our own age age of Satan here in our own time and culture is a spirit of self self praise and self proclamation and self worth and whatever you want to do to promote yourself that's the spirit of the age and that's the heartbeat of Satan that's his desire to elevate himself above God and that's what humanism here is today a very popular philosophy in our own culture idolatry of self so recognize here, God created Satan good, and yet unrighteousness was found in him as his desires for his own self grew to be disordered, and he sinned. So now, you've now reached the end of page two, but as we think about this, why did God allow this to happen? Here, look a little bit about how God allowed this to happen, by creating creatures with good desires, and those desires grew to be disordered, and now sin is in his world. but But why did God allow this? Okay, this goes all the way back to Revelation thirteen eight that we started with. God planned before the foundation of the world to slaughter his own son, Jesus Christ, for the sake of his name, for the praise of his glory among the nations, so that he could demonstrate his love in such a powerful way in laying down his own life for his people who are sinners, who are not deserving of In fact, we, are Ill, we Ill deserve God's forgiveness. And so God did this. He, he allowed sin. He permitted sin. He ordained sin in his own creation, just like he does everything else, for his own glory and for the display of his own majesty, so he can exalt himself and exalt his power to defeat sin through his own suffering and death. This was his plan before the very foundation of the world. This is what Acts 2 tells. us. is Acts 4. This is God's plan that was fulfilled in the slaughter of his son. And it was a magnificent display of God's mercy and God's justice, and it required sin. God's beauty shone out in the light of, or in the lack of light, of the darkness, the wretchedness of sin. Okay, it's so important for us to remember, there is no dualism in the universe. Not like Satan and God are these two equal powers who are fighting back and forth between good and evil. No, it was God, always God, and God has... Evil and Satan are serving the very purposes of God, and we recognize the primary purpose that evil and sin serves in God's good creation is to magnify his name through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us not, not try to write off sin as a product of free will, but rather let's say God has ordained that sin would come into his creation, but he had a good reason to do so. To display his own glory, to make his name known, to show his mercy and to show his justice in the suffering and death of his own sons. So let's praise our God for his great wisdom and insight, and let's come to him with our own sin. We recognize we're all sinners. We need to come to Christ to have our sin dealt with. We need to come to him for forgiveness and him alone, like we sang this morning, like we sang this evening, not what my hands have done. It's not what our tears have done. It's not any amount of work or effort or uh, amount of grovelling. It's coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he has done and our recognition of that and coming to him with empty hands and clinging to Christ. So let's do that. Let's worship our great God together. Let's pray.